If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Welcome to Nordic True Crime. We are a bi-weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So, if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig. Welcome back, everyone, to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. Hi, we are a true crime podcast that focuses on forensic psychology. We are both forensic psychologists here in Los Angeles. So, thank you for joining us again. We are bringing you a special Halloween bonus episode this month. So, we're going to do some follow up on The Exorcist and the crossover episode that we did with Holly Weird Paranormal. So, hey, guys, this is Dr. Scott. We had a blast. Um, Hopefully, most of you have already had a chance to listen to our crossover episode with Holly Weird Paranormal. We love those guys so much. Um, We really went in-depth with a lot of research on the Hollywood aspect of uh, The Exorcist and some background information on conflicting historical stuff. And what's really cool about today, we talked about this in that episode, is that We wanted to have a special episode with a very good friend of mine who is um, blessing us with his presence. (laughs) Seriously, um, this is Al Hobbs. Say hi, Al. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Al Hobbs is a very good friend of mine for way too long now. Um, He is a set designer in television and motion pictures here in Los Angeles for... An amazingly long amount of time for someone who looks so unbelievably young. Oh, thank you. We're all just talking about how young we look. I know. We're we're bragging. But here's the thing that's really cool about Al. Um, Not only does he share my love for all things macabre, Al is truly an exorcist super fan. A a true super fan with receipts, as the kids say. um, Because he has delved into so many aspects of this particular um, book and movie and case. Um, Once again, Shiloh and I get to look at things always with the questioning eye of forensic psychologists. And now we're going to get an additional view with somebody who knows more about several aspects of the background that come in conflict, 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 (laughs) um, 
with uh, some of the receipts that Tammy and Bryce got for okay. Hollywood Paranormal. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. All right, enough of me yapping. I want to get to Al. Al, thank you so much for being here. Um, first, before we even jump into The Exorcist, are you a believer in paranormal? And do you feel like you've ever had any kind of uh, experience? I don't know that I've ever had any kind of really tangible experience. Um, I'd like to believe in it. You know, I, I think that there's there is a a part of the universe that we are yet to understand that is you know impacts us spiritually and emotionally. But I don't think I believe in God or the devil or anything. That's all kind of fiction made up by humans to sort of intimidate other humans. And I should say that you're also, you grew up Catholic. Oh, boy, did I ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I went to Catholic grade school, high school, and college. And East Coast wow. Catholic, not East West Coast yeah, Catholic. And, and it seems like the East Coast Catholic's a lot more hardcore. Like <laughs> Roman Catholic, Irish, you know, like right. hardcore, your guilt, fear, the whole, you know, horrible. <laughs> Sounds like the exorcist already, right? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. but, so you're, you pay for some therapist Mercedes already, right? <laughs> several times over, and a couple of kids to go to college. College, um, <laughs> but I think it's because of that perspective that I came to this to seeing this movie for the first time with such built-in fear and terror, like oh, already like ingrained in me. So that like there was only one way I was ever going to react to this movie. <laughs> wow, cool. Okay, so you're you're uh, agnostic about some of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. And then what? How old were? Well, you don't have to say how old you were. <laughs> But tell us about your first experience of seeing The Exorcist. So I'll preface this with um, the, the very first ever live-action movie that I saw was Jaws. My parents took me to see Jaws. So we saw, like, in the same summer, we saw, like, the Disney Robin Hood movie, followed by Jaws. So That was the first live-action? first live-action. Oh, my so God. That's amazing. <laughs> that just kind of informed who I am as an adult. And in part, Fascinating so parental choices, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, yeah, I mean, like... Oh, it's a beach movie. It's sort of fun. There's kids. It'll be... Um, yeah, so that was my first film experience. And I think because of that, I was very sort of dialed into what was going on in movies, even as a kid. That's sort of what started me wanting to work in movies and sort of being interested in horror movies and loving great white sharks and all, all I mean, you know, to the point that I've like gone great white shark diving as an adult. Oh, right. Yeah. It's all really still with me. So, and I think because of the the era, it was sort of like Jaws, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all like in rapid succession. So I was very aware of like what was going on with movies. So The Exorcist, the movie came out in 71, and um, I was far too young to see it then. But then it was re-released, I want to say like in 79 or 80, Hmm. and I begged my parents. I was like, please, please, please. Because I kind of had a sense that it was this big, scary movie, and, you know, like, everybody was talking about it, and it was, oh, my God, it's coming back. So people were trying to go see it for the first time. Um, And, of course, I'd never seen it. I begged them, please, please, please let me go see it. And they were like, absolutely not, under no circumstance. (laughs) So (laughs) me and my best friend at the time, who was kind of like the local juvenile delinquent, he and I, we... Went to the movies and went and saw whatever movie it was we were allowed to go see. And we once the movie started, we snuck out and snuck into The Exorcist. And I honestly have, like, no real, like, specific memory of seeing it other than it just being a white-knuckled ride the whole, right. the whole way through. So 
we saw it. We didn't talk about it. Me and this friend of mine, we just kind of like went on. Like there was almost a, like, what have we done? Kind of <laughs> feeling to it. I guess I was. So you don't even remember having like that sort of adrenaline thrill of like, talking about the movie afterwards. No. So yeah. that's all. So we're going to talk about dissociative fugue states right. in the upcoming episode. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I genuinely believe that like this movie, having seen it at twelve or thirteen, like really ruined me for other horror movies because there's nothing that has ever come even close to the profound experience that I had seeing this movie for the first time. So me and this friend, we go see this movie. We don't talk about it. It's a dark day. It's like, you know, like in the middle of the day, like we went to some matinee, go home and we're having having dinner with my parents. And my mother keeps saying to me like, what's wrong with you? You look really upset. Are you feeling okay? And I like, I must've just like looked green and scared and shaken up. And so I just like blurted out like, we went and saw The Exorcist today. I know you told us we weren't supposed to go see it. <laughs> and then, so again, with the good parenting skills, like the first thing my parents were like, yeah, we told you not to do that. Slap. Okay. You know? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, you got slapped? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, wow. That took a turn. Terror on yeah. terror on terror. On terror right. You know? And literally, you know. I think probably for a year solid. I mean, that's what I remember. My father might say something differently, but I had bunk beds. I like made him sleep on the bottom bunk for like a year with the lights on. And it was just like a wow. really terrifying experience. So do you feel that your visceral terror experience of that, is it informed by your upbringing in the Catholic faith? Absolutely. I mean, I think a real specific part of it is was definitely informed by that. I mean, you're sort of, from the time, you know, I mean, it's indoctrination. You're sort of taught to believe that all these things are real, you know, like the virgin birth, and this guy could walk on water, and he brought this guy back from the dead. So you're really supposed to believe in all this as some, you know, that it has some truth to it. So to then see this movie that is in a in a manner that is so much more sophisticated than any 12-year-old could handle, you know, that, like, yeah, it was intellectually terrifying, it was emotionally terrifying, and, you know, so, and it stuck with me, like, it never, it never faded. Wow. Like, as a young person, so. And done really well, it's not like you saw some weird, cheesy version of yeah. possession movie. It's alive, you yeah. know, <laughs> because that yeah, was... Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, I think it... It went so much further than any movie up to that time. You know, like Rosemary's Baby, I think, came out in, like, 68. And a, an excellent movie, you know, by all standards of a really good movie in all regards. But nowhere near close as scary as this. Well, no. I mean, it's it's also... It's not visceral horror. It's it's you know because there's some body horror in in The Exorcist, but in Rosemary's Baby, it's one. Of, I mean, I re, I remember I had always loved it, and for my master's uh, diagnostic class, we had to pick a movie and write and do a diagnosis on the character. So I thought, oh, okay, so let me do Rosemary's Baby as if Rosemary's having uh, a psychotic break, hmm. and I mean it really it kind of lends to how well that movie is crafted because up until the end, you don't, yeah, you don't know what's happening. I mean, like this is, the truth, you right? don't know. It's, it's unreliable narrator and, you know, she's, you know, having health problems and, um, but the, the exorcist and I didn't, I didn't see it until much later. I think it was until that release. I was probably in college and thinking, and it was so different from the slasher movies of the eighties by that time oh, when yeah. I saw it. Yeah. And also, I mean, so, and even, 
so I think the next time I saw it was probably in high school, and we saw it like in somebody's house at a party, and there were still parts of it that I couldn't completely watch. I mean, we were watching part of it right now, and there was, you know, there's a part when the bed starts to fall down and the lights start to flash, and that face comes up. I uh-huh. still have a hard time looking <laughs> Well, you're, you're actually having an emotional, you know, you're, you've got an emotional memory that's attached yeah, to right. this, and even though it's, you know, a sunny California afternoon and we're sitting in the yeah. a well-lit living room watching it. Yeah. And I had to, like, you know, Leave the lights on at homes because I know when I go home and it's going to be dark and we've been sitting here talking all afternoon about the extras, I'm going to be freaked out when I go home. Because, like, pre planning. I don't believe in any of this stuff, but this movie just like uh-huh. grabs a hold of that part uh-huh. of your brain and keeps twisting, you know, yeah, it just it doesn't let go. That's so fascinating to me. So, okay, um, you listened to our podcast, yeah. our crossover episode. What What's the first thing that comes up for you where we were off? Or some of the historical data? What, what, or what did you have that was conflicting information? Well, and this is kind of historically conflict, conflicted information. There, um, it wasn't until, like, 1996 that anybody started to do some, like, real hardcore, like, actual journalistic fact-finding about the original story that was said to inspire the movie. So the, the story about this kid in Maryland who supposedly, you know, went, went through a real exorcism. Right. Um, and it's for lots of reasons, I think. You know, I think originally in 1949 when this actually happened, the Catholic Church was trying to be very guarded about what was going on. Um, and for that reason, they changed the person's name, they changed the family's name, they changed the location of where the family lived. Mm. Um, but then, in like 1996, this guy, uh, Mark Obsasnik, I think is how you say his name, did this kind of really in-depth, like, he was a reporter and journalist, and he had like a little bit of his bio here. Should I read it? Yeah, yeah, okay. please. Um, Washington D.C.-based writer and cultural historian, who's authored seven books and more than seventy articles on such subjects as unexplained phenomenon, popular culture, and rock and roll. Because, as we all know, rock and roll is the music of yes. Satan. Yes, <laughs> Satan. But he he approached this article from a, a really sort of fact-driven, like he wanted to know who the real kid was, who the family was, where it happened, all that kind of stuff. So some of what was on your last podcast is the typically misreported stuff that we now know is, to, you know, is not true. So it sort of gets watered down through the various... And it's the telephone game, right, you know, right, and right. there's been sort of all manner of... You know, different people have written different books about it, and some have latched on to, you know, the purely spiritual or the, you know, the purely criminal part of, uh-huh. you know, the whole thing. So for that reason, they've emphasized different things. Um, and it's a very convoluted story, too. I okay. mean, it's, you know, just the chronology of what actually happened and, you know, where they took the kid and who, what family members were involved and all that kind of stuff. Oh, but talking about convoluted versions of this. I watched the trailer for The Haunted Boy. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And that was kind of all I could get through. Yeah. Yeah. Um. It's, that's like, that. I'll never get that $1.99 back from Amazon. Right. That was, it's pretty bad. To the point where I kind of expected like one of them to be at the end of the trailer, like, be sure and download our video for our new album that drops later this month. And yeah. Like, what? Like, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> it's, we, we, we talked about that with uh, what, just the the, you know the buffoonery of the investigating team and just, it, just the presentation the presentation yeah. and like you know there there are just a lot of things wrong with it but see what that made me think though is that they were kind of working towards their own 
fictional version of this story. Like they were sort of involving themselves somehow. They want to create a new narrative that involves yeah, them. That involves yeah. them. I was like, yeah, yeah all right. Um, so this guy that you just gave yeah. us the bio on, did he write an article or a book? Yeah. So what he did, so there was a like a Entertainment Tonight article, I think in like 1996. You know, like on TV, okay, yeah. for which he first started to have this conversation. Um, then he wrote this kind of five-part article for uh, a magazine called uh, Strange Magazine, hmm. and it's where he lays out like all this really exhaustive research that he did. And then it later, in like 2006, he put it in a book. I see. Um, okay. And it's also the place where I learned that I think. Most of this relates to what you guys do in terms of psychology and psychiatry because this guy went back and talked to people that lived in the neighborhood, like his childhood friends, um, some of the priests that were actually involved that, you know, for a decade, no one could get them to say anything about it. And then finally, as some of them were dying, you know, they were like, yeah, we were there. He he, he never vomited on anybody, you know. Yeah. And so it was... A little more of the truth started to come out with with this guy's digging. Well, it also makes you wonder, or it makes me wonder. Well, then why didn't you say that earlier? You know what 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 makes someone in a position of authority like that feel that they have to sustain and support support this narrative? I mean, maybe there was an ulterior motive of like, hey, it's getting people back to church. It's getting people back to more a more black and white view of the universe and spirituality and religion. I don't know. I'm just you know I'm just my personal thought on that is that you know historically the Catholic Church has always been very tight lipped about things like exorcism because I think in this day and age it's like easily disproved mm-hmm. and I think for the Catholic Church to come out and sort of take a big hard full throated stand one way or the other like you're either gonna shut the church down or you're going to be met with like this profound skepticism like oh well we have definitive proof that this boy was possessed by the devil yeah really really <laughs> yeah. really now like let's 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 have it and if you can't if you can't prove it then it's like so then your whole church thing is kind of well, a failure i i think it, you know in looking at it again through a psychological lens or a clinical lens it makes me think of you know, how much something gets adopted into the vernacular of the culture. And the exorcist certainly, like, opened a door. I'm not talking about a spiritual door. I'm talking about a, a new perspective and a new, a whole wave of movies, hmm. you know, a whole wave like of, a, you know. The whole genre. Yeah. Exactly. There had only been a couple of possession movies before that time. I think there was one with Shirley MacLaine, um, which is the reason they knocked, one of the reasons they knocked her out of the running for it. She and Perry King did the possession of Joe Delaney <laughs> and like two years before or something. But the idea that, um, you know, this is one of the problems that we run into and in doing the work that I do in with uh, law enforcement and going into the community and going into psych hospitals and interacting with people, you know, at least once a month I'll interview a minor, you know, somebody like under the age of 12 that I'll be like, I'm hearing voices. I'm hearing voices telling me to kill myself. And I'm at the point now that most of the time I can turn to them and go, no, you're not. You're absolutely not hearing voices. Let's let's talk about this, but you're not hearing voices, and they you know they're all surprised because they've either learned that from being in the psych hospital for two days before right. I get there, or you know 
they have picked it up from somebody in the family or, you know, like it's a way, you know, it's a wedge, it's a way to get their needs met. And I just wonder like how that sort of is a reflection of what is happening really around the world. It's that there's now there's, and and especially like in the evangelical movement, it's like very popular. Well, and today compared to, you know, 1949, when this supposed, when this happened, or even the seventies when the movie when the book were written and came out. Like now, you know, whatever means you can achieve your sad celebrity status, like if you're gonna feign bipolar disorder, like <laughs> you can read up on that and pretend you're bipolar and like a real doctor will say, No, actually you're not. This is yeah, what sure. what you're doing to yourself. Yeah. And it's also dismissive and and minimizing of people with that really who actually it. have yeah. that that diagnosis. Right. And we and it, like bipolar it's interesting, but bipolar two to three years ago was the diagnosis du jour, and now it's borderline personality disorder and people kind of like tossing it around not really understand like, no, that you don't you don't toss around a diagnosis like that at all. At all. Anyway. We're, but I digress. <laughs> so back to um, well, I guess let me just ask: when this possession was going on, forty nine, forty nine, was it something the the church was trying to keep a tight lip on? It wasn't necessarily high profile, right? Where they were sort of advertising, "Hey, there's an exorcist." No, exorcism I don't going think, on. Yeah, I don't think anyone was advertising, but. Yeah, the church is historically has this kind of like side eye attitude about it. Like they kind of have to believe in it because it's it's part of their doctrine. It's part of you know right. what Jesus Christ was supposed to have been an exorcist. You know, so again, for them to sort of flat out say like, "Oh no, honey, you're not possessed." Mm-hmm. It's you know like like really like you're the only people that I'm supposed to come to for this kind of thing, right. and you don't believe it, right? So. I think by virtue of them thinking the more contained they could keep it, the you know, mm-hmm. the the fewer answers they had to actually come up with. Well, sort of one going way or the other. back to the the priest then later saying no, all that stuff didn't happen necessarily. Maybe you know, if they have to go to the Catholic Church and say this is what's happening for it to meet the criteria, right. maybe that was embellished a little bit. It, it really does sound like it was a tremendous game of telephone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. all, all the way along, you know, because mm-hmm. there were different people. I, I even, like, you know, this uh, Marco Pasnik, Obsasnik, uh, I'm sure I butchered this poor guy's name, Obsasnik. Um, he interviewed, you know, people that worked or that went to school with the priest who allegedly had his arm slashed. Oh, okay. And they were like, gosh, you know, I don't think so because he was our PE teacher that year and he was know, never like, injured he wasn't injured and we like so and it's also it what Nick, 30 scratch. 40 years later yeah by this time true, true. yeah yeah so. okay so chronologically I mean I guess anything else that with the original case Ooh, yeah. that you want to get into and tell us about um, okay so it's long been believed or you know reported that this happened in Mount Rainier in Maryland and that has okay. never been true I think that that's part of the smoke screen that they threw up around the original occurrence because um, again one of the things that that uh, Mark Obsesnik like dug into extensively was the neighborhood that this in Mount Rainier that was where it was supposed to have happened and part of this came to like this is when they did start to advertise like this was in the newspaper that you know priest frees Mount Rainier boy from the clutches of the devil <laughs> so 
that was like the official, you know, story. Um, but so through this digging, um, Mark Upsasnick found out that it actually happened in Cottage City, which is a, in Maryland, a suburb of D.C. Um, and beginning with that, he started to find out who the kid was. So I know who this, or I think I know, I mean, I have the name. I, I'm reluctant to say his name because I think he's probably in his 80s. He might be dead, but I don't want to out the guy. If he's... It wasn't well, one of the names that we used in the was, last it episode? It wasn't one okay. of the names in the last hey. Oh, that's interesting. You're the super okay. fan. I think you get to make the call. And it's, it's relatively... I mean, you can Google, like, who was the real exorcist boy. Right. I'll use his first name. His first name was Ronald. Okay. So we knew, I think the we Roland, knew that. Right. The, like, there were They're the back and forth. There was Roland and Robbie and Doe and Mannheim. I don't know where the Mannheim ever came from. Okay. But, you know, Doe, Jane Doe, Jane, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, let's see. So this is some stuff about what he did. Uh, okay, so this was a childhood friend. Uh, let me preface this by saying I have not seen Robbie or what are we going to call him now? Roland, Ronald? Call him Ronald. Ronald for probably 45 years, but I still consider him a friend. So I don't want to betray that. He was a year younger, um, was uh, a year behind him at Cottage City Elementary. Um, he was a bit of a loner. I don't know any other words I might use to describe him more appropriately. He was sedentary, quiet, um, he wasn't into sports, which I remember in the other podcast, you mentioned that, like, well, if this kid was into sports and had this kind of athleticism, ath- yeah, athleticism and this sort of overly emotionally charged moment, maybe he did slash the guy's arm with a bed spring that he right. pulled out from the bed. I don't think that that's possible. And then this other research about the kids being like, no, father, whatever his name, didn't he tossed his softballs all year that year. <laughs> um Let's see. He knew that that uh, Ronald was somehow sick, in quotes. Um, if you remember the facts, he and his mother went to St. Louis for treatment. So that was when they first went to the, the first, the, I think it was like the uncle's house right. in St. Louis. And incidentally, that house online now is often regarded as like, oh, the real-life exorcism house. And I think that that's because, one, it was reported that that was where the first exorcism allegedly took place. But it also looks a lot like the house in the movie. It's a big red brick colonial, and it sort of kind of fits the mm-hmm. the sort of fun, spooky movie or true life thing. Right. Um, but they that was you know they went there because he was sick, and I don't know that anything really happened there. But okay, so you've used the word sick. I mean, do we have any background? Like, what was? Was it behavior? It was behavioral issues. Was he depressed? What What are they? Well, all right. So this will this will be kind of like jumping ahead a little bit, but let me find it. So there was there was a family, and there were three brothers, and they were one of the brothers was like Ronald's best friend, and um, so in an interview. Mark asked him, so do you think he was really possessed? No, I don't think he was ever possessed. I think it was psychological. As far as any real possession or anything like that, I don't think so. Interesting psychological aspects to it. We talked about this before. They were German Lutherans. He was an only child. Uh, I think the grandmother actually was a central figure in the whole family issue dynamic. Um, Very very influential role in all this. Um, This old world religion, superstition, and the mother got caught up in it. And the father just kind of backed away. So it sounds to me like this kid is only child, sort of surrounded by these. So it's the grandmother, the mother, and the aunt. Okay. Surrounded by 
possibly fanatical religious women, <laughs> one who is openly sort of spiritually oriented or yeah, spiritualist. It, it, so the aunt's a real person, and, sort yeah. of. Well, oh, the aunt, obviously she's a real person, yeah, yeah. but like sort of. And she was definitely into the occult, okay, you know, okay. and the Ouija board and all that kind of stuff. Um, Although I would say that even though spirit boards had been around in some form, the idea that like a Ouija board at that time that was put up by Milton Bradley, oh yeah, it was a you know, like right. so is this a game of telephone we're playing also that she was into the occult or did, was there like oh somebody got a Ouija board for Christmas? Yeah, no, yeah. I I think that. Historically, all of that is true. I think, like, we are as guilty as anybody else that I would accuse of playing telephone because it's none of it is really aside from the stuff that, like, this Mark Obsasnik got from, like, you know, uh, town records and who owned the building of the house and where they lived at what time and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he really, like, again, laid it out in these kind of dry terms as to who it was and where it happened. And he made no claim as to whether or not he believed it was genuine or. You know, if it was psychologically whatever any of that was, he was just kind of like laid it all sort of out and says, "Well, you decide for yourself." But yes, I think it is one big game of telephone, and I think more so because once the movie people got a hold of it, they just ran with it in as yeah. many oh, different sure. directions as they could because that's all good for a movie. Yeah. You know, of course, and with absolutely the, with the book too. Like the book had kind of the same slow burn. Mm-hmm. that had to do with like word of mouth and people being like, Oh my God, did you read this? And you know, with no advertising campaign, um, which, okay. I, I wouldn't, can we, I, I want to jump ahead to something cause okay. I want to make sure we don't lose this. Cause you said something so fascinating the other day about the marketing, about how they were reporting that people were running out of yeah. the theater and getting sick. Yeah. But it had nothing to do with the possession or the exorcism scenes. It was yeah. all about what? So there, there's two really specific instances. So one was the very first original trailer that they showed for a very limited period of time. And they pulled it almost immediately because the whole trailer, all it was, was like a like a beginning shot of, you know, the car pulling up to the house and this kind of like, you know, deep resonant voice, like something beyond comprehension is happening in the upstairs bedroom of this house. And then it immediately cuts to just like two full on minutes of just flashing black and white images. So people had (laughs) epileptic seizures, actual epileptic seizures. So that was the first press about this movie that like, Oh my God, remember the book that everybody was so scared. Right. Well, there's a trailer for the movie and people are having seizures. So (laughs) right away it, it starts running. But then the other thing was, and actually Alan Burson, I think was the person that, um, kind of revealed this, that there was, you know, for the longest time, there were stories about people getting sick and fainting just because, oh, my God, the demon, it's so horrible and everything. But she finally admitted after all these years that what people were getting up and walking out of was when they, they do the uh, the x-ray scene you oh. know, and the um, arteriogram. Right. Because it was just so graphically portrayed. And one of the things that's interesting, just even in the way that that scene is shot, is uh, so Owen Reutzman was the, the DP, and he fully admits he says like I didn't I didn't light it at all. Well, like we used the fluorescent lighting that was in this you know radiology room in this lab. Mm-hmm. So it's this very documentary feeling card hold with the one addition of this really simple special effect of them putting the needle in her neck and the blood coming out and all this kind of stuff. That that was the scene that like people were getting up and which running. for that time would have been very graphic. Oh and sure, yeah. It's also. <clears throat> There's nothing horrifying in the portrayal of it. It's just this gruesome medical 
you know, procedure. procedure. Right. Um, and they're doing it to this little girl. And it, it's also, I think, part of the context of that scene is that she's in no way does she show any signs of any weird possession during that scene. She's just a little girl. Right. And it's just this horrible thing yeah. to see. I, I watched that scene today and just like the big machinery the that they're moving. Yeah, it was so uncomfortable. And she doesn't have a, a line in the whole thing, but there's one moment where the noise is just like, yes. and you just hear this tiny little voice like kind of going, oh, mm. uh, like she's just terrified. Whimper. So it's awful. I mean, it's a rough scene. Yeah. And you see like Ellen Burson is standing up in the gallery like clenching her face. Because <laughs> oh it's her daughter. Yeah. So the idea but once, so taking this back to telephone and miscommunication and history and being misconstrued and becoming legend that then somehow becomes fact again. Here's something I think is very important is like the way it's portrayed historically is that people were running out of the theater in terror. Yeah. And it right. wasn't about the, it was about the, the body horror, the actual medical viscera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, happening at that time. And I do think there's a, a little like, you know, three minute, you know, cultural impact of the exorcist when it first opened. I mean, people were genuinely unnerved and frightened by it to the point where they like got up and left. And, you know, there are, in this little mini two-minute documentary thing, there's, like, a woman who passes out, and then they talk to, like, some zitty high school kid who worked at the theater. He's like, well, yeah, they come out, and if they faint, I go get the smelling salts and make sure I have a barf bag. I will say this. It's like maybe, you know, in so many instances when you're watching a film, and uh, like a thriller, and there's a certain level of melodrama and suspense that is built by the use of certain camera angles and, and music. I mean, music is so important to that, which is very stark. It's very stark contrast to the way this movie was filled. It's almost feels like a documentary. Yeah. It does not move quickly in the way that today's movies are like just jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. Yeah. So, that would have been disturbing at that time. It's like, well, what are we watching? We're not, we're not hearing any big dramatic orchestration to tell us that this is all fake. Yeah. There, right. There are right. no clues. There's no the clues to that except like, Oh, you have rats in the attic. Cause there's like the scratching and there is one sort of conscious technique that I think Friedkin used, which was to manipulate the audience in such a way to keep them off kilter and it starts from the very beginning with shots where you know you're moving through the street in Iraq and you are coming around a corner and you just catch a glimpse of sort of someone that you can't really see kind of moving out of frame or you know the priest almost gets run down by the carriage which I never knew for years apparently like they called her in the script like the funeral goer like she's a woman and she's like crying like really in sorrow all draped in black and it's this big loud moment like an explosive moment where Marin turns the corner and the carriage just roars by and you get this quick fleeting glimpse of this kind of visage of death and sorrow rolling by bouncing through the thing with the black veil and everything and so like it was these conscious techniques to sort of keep you like guessing like what the hell was that like yeah. right and so I think again, and not really giving you enough like time to actually process yeah, it. Like, it wait, what did I see? Keeps moving. I mean, I, you, you, and us just watching the edited version on AMC just now. You're like, oh, this is where they do the overlay on the face. I'm yeah. like, wait, what? They're projecting. <laughs> oh, there's a complete, you know, yeah. overlay on Reagan's face during the exorcism. And that's where we have to at some point talk about the spooky subliminal, subliminal yes. in quotes. Image. I have a couple <laughs> questions about all that. Okay. Um, but to, to this idea of telephone and sort of willful disbelief and 
I think the Catholic Church at the time of the original incident, their motives were to keep it as tightly contained as possible. The filmmakers, their effort was to have it be as much talked about in as many bizarro ways as they possibly could. So when something cropped up about, like, the set burned down, like, oh, you know, the, the set burned down right about the same time they fired the first production designer because they hated the set. So then they needed some time to rebuild a new set, so... That set burns down. They have six weeks. They build a new set. They hire a new production designer. So, yeah. like, but it makes for a good, like, <gasps> yeah. the devil burned down the set. Like, no. Some... Well, just this morning on the news, they were talking about the Netflix show, The Haunting Haunting Hill House. Yeah. And that Which is great, by the way. Tweets. It's just, the, it, it's like I'm having deja vu, but just in this you know, year of tweets of people saying I wanted to cry and vomit and laugh all in the same episode. And I'm really? thinking the same thing, like, oh, okay, it's, it's marketing. It's literally on the news this morning. Yeah. So I will say, I mentioned this to you, so I'm working now on a movie that I can't discuss by name. Darn. Because Damn it. I signed a big NDA and I don't want to get sued. For those right. for those out there who don't know what an NDA is, what is that? A non-disclosure agreement. So it means you won't reveal any of the secrets of the movie. And so part of it is, yeah, I don't want to get sued. But the other part is, like, it's a horror movie. I don't want to blow it for anybody. Like, right. that's the fun of going to see a horror movie. But... So I've been on this since, like, August, and from the very beginning, people were trying to spin, like, ooh, spooky things have been happening in the office. I'm like, really? Oh, oh my gosh. And we just started to shoot, so now the people on the set were talking about, well, did you hear there was this stuff happening in the office? And I know, as much as I want to believe in that, I know for a fact that the stuff they're talking about is not happening. Really? No. So, Al, how could you possibly know it's not happening? <laughs> because I'm doing it. <laughs> Shut up! Right. Because, you know, like, how, how could you not Please be keep, a like, a blog of that, right? and then at the end, <laughs> and it, it, But I will say, it happens with very little effort, you know? Like, oh, sure. Like, I almost didn't have to do anything. Like, I mentioned That's one, awesome. like, creepy, you know, housekeeping person, and all of a sudden, it was like, so, so are you just starting the game of telephone? Or are you actually doing things like moving something? From yeah. A, well, it's yeah. a little bit of both now. So okay. I started the, tam- the game of telephone, but then I'm actively, you know, yeah. Yeah. I might also let me just the give best. a little context of this. That like <laughs> the an even more devious version of this happened. Al worked on the remake of the Alamo. <laughs> Uh, years ago that all shot in Austin and there's a huge fanatic base of Alamo Alamo fans there that are like all obsessed with the first movie and they do reenactments and you know they're they also get fast and loose with the history as well so Al (laughs) during his downtime when he was on location created like three or four different personas and have would have them arguing with each other on the in message like the, boards the chat room for the Alamo that is like, amazing it was so much fun and, <laughs> yes the Alamo does have a basement <laughs> right? I've seen it I've been there you know and like how could you say it doesn't but I think people are just so and I I want to believe that stuff. Like, I wanted, wanted to be, like, when I was there, you know, Saturday all by myself, I wanted so bad for something to happen. Like, Right. And I did things that spooked other people, hoping it would sort of, like, you know, prompt, like, oh, he was playing with such and such a prop. He shouldn't have been doing that. And, like, you so should then, wear, you should wear your blackout contact lenses. Right? Like, was... like, just kind of wake up, like, <laughs> pretend like I'm on the floor and just having a seizure or something. Um, that's awesome. But yeah, and so I'm 
hundred percent certain. And I also think that you know William Peter Blatty was very sort of measured and straightforward and like I, like crazy smart, clever man. Uh-huh. William Friedkin is kind of out there. So I think that William Friedkin spun things a little bit and then forgot how he spun it and then maybe spun it a different direction. Right. So that has lent to, you know, people have interviews and recordings of him saying one thing and then saying something almost completely different, you know, so that it's like, well, which was it? Right. To the point where he might not even know anymore, right? right? I mean, with all this time that's passed. So, do we know what happened to Roland? Like, what he? I heard he grew up to be like a NASA astronaut, supposedly. So he grew up to be fine. Um, uh, Mark Upsasnik at one point tried to contact him and actually spoke to him on the phone, and didn't. The the conversation, as you might imagine, didn't really go anywhere because his reaction was, "I'm I'm not going to be in any way way helpful about this. I don't want to discuss it." I mean, I think it was. Whatever happened, I think it was a painful, awful experience for him as a kid. Um, so, but after that, you know, he graduated high school. I don't know. It doesn't. I don't know if it says where he went to college, but yeah, he supposedly went on to have like a happy life. He got married, he had kids, he worked for NASA. He's had things patented, like okay. some cool space age phone that's like heat resistant or something. Oh. You know, so, so smart too. I mean, so. Yeah. <laughs> That, okay, yeah, so building on that, I, I that he's smart. I would I, let me offer just a, you know, uh, a perspective. That he gets this call after all these years. He's an adult. Look, we were all teenagers at one time, and part of the developmental process of individuation from your family of origin and becoming your own person is a bit of rebellion, and. Sometimes it's innocuous and, you know, barely noticeable. And sometimes it's big. Mm-hmm. So what if that's what this was? This was a way to push back against whatever was going on in the family, which we'll never know. We will yeah. never actually factually know what was going on in that family. And now he's just embarrassed as hell. Like, oh, my God, this whole, like, I had the whole town, you yeah. know, up in arms about this. And, and to this day, you know, like in that haunted documentary, the haunted boy, they're interviewing all these people. It's almost like, it's almost like that scene from the, the first Blair witch movie where they're interviewing the townspeople. Right. Like it's a, that's fictionalized. And this is, yeah. these are interviews are like, Oh yeah, we all knew it was going on. And well, like, so that. the horror of like, Oh my God, I'm like an elderly man. And I caused all this ruckus and I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, And not just an adult, an elderly man, but like someone who went on to like great success. I think, you know, like, so the last thing this guy wants to hear in the coffee room at NASA is like, hey, did you hear? Right. (laughs) That would be awful. And I I do think that, I mean, in the sum total of all these, these quotes from, you know, childhood friends and neighbors and people that said they witnessed it was that, yeah, that he went through some things that was most likely psychological or along the lines of family abuse, you know. So who, yeah, once you get past that, who would want to relive any of that or discuss right. it? Even if it's to say, like, you know, oh, I lied about all of it. Like, no. And then you make the church look stupid. You know, that, that you're between a rock and a hard place. Right? Yeah. Um, I also wonder, too, it, it seems, a lot of it seems to read this this article. And I, again, at some point we have to, I have to read the thing really clearly and succinctly because the article is really fantastic. Um and it's, but it's long. Yeah. Um, 
And we can also link it on okay, our website yeah. too under the phone. Oh yeah, and you've got pictures too that we will oh, be yeah. you got pictures that we will be Oh and I have like a picture I have pictures of him from his yearbook, the real kid. Um, oh, but one of the things that you start to get from these conversations is that it sounded like the mother was behind a lot of it. And interesting. It, again, now I'm not I'm certainly not a psychologist. But it sounded to me like, you know, a parent has a sick kid, and suddenly the parent is the center of attention. And Munchausen by proxy. So then, you know, like, that's what prolongs that aspect of it. And so somehow, you know, here is this woman dealing with her mother and her sister. And, like... And this son weirdly enmeshed with all these female figures in his life. Yeah, so, I mean, again... Wanting to please them, possibly. Play along. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Um, okay, so now where? <laughs> <laughs> well, anything else about the original story? That's Let's see. Um, so there was an episode. In, so this is, this is a, kind of about the, the sort of kid that he was. Um, so in eighth grade, it was 48-49 school year. They were in a, he and his friend were in a class together at Bladensburg Junior High. He was sitting in a chair... And it was a chair with, like, the little desk attached. Um, And it started to shake. The whole thing started to shake and vibrating. And the teacher yelled, like, stop it, you know, like, stop whatever you're doing. And he finally said, it's not me. But he continued to do this whole thing. And he got kicked out of the class. And that was the last they saw him at that school. Um, And what age was he at this time? So this was probably, like, his junior year in high school. Okay. I think so. Or no, wait. This would have been, sorry, this was eighth grade. Yeah, they were in eighth grade. So that's still pretty yeah. young. I mean, um, but a weird, cleverish, attention-getting tactic. Okay, so then there was this other instance that the same friend relates. So Ronald had a dog, and the dog was a stray that um, had just been kind of roaming around the neighborhood. And um, the dog was mean, and nobody ever knew who owned it. It just came out of nowhere. Well... Ronald basically adopted the dog. The dog was really his best friend, not me. The dog hated everyone and everything and would bite anyone in sight, but he loved Ronald. Um, so then this friend at one point says, one time he called me up and told me to come over, and I never really trusted him because he was a sneaky, mean little bastard. <laughs> Going over there, it says, what he does is he tricks his friend to come over, and he sticks the dog on the kid. But then the friend says, I don't know why I fell for it, because he did it to every kid in the neighborhood. Oh, jeez. He was, you know... Yeah. He was... I mean, that's... In the scheme, wasn't out killing people or doing drugs, but, like, just a little bastard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Thank God. uh, I mean, that was when the the actual story came out. Um, Oh, Father Hughes, yeah, was the first priest that got slashed with the spring... Okay. Um, and then, you know, see these kids. I never noticed a slasher injury. He was our PE teacher for our class. He never missed a class. I remember him pitching the softballs in the spring. So, you know, like... To, to Again, another elaboration, possibly. Yeah, or, or maybe there was something that, like, you know, the, the obvious thing to me is that the kid did something. Maybe he did physically interact with the priest and, right. and cut him or do something. And the priest said, 
I'm out of here, you little bastard. <laughs> you know. So, and but that because that was his only involvement with the whole thing. And when you read, you know, like the scary version, it's like, oh, he would never return for fear of the demon. You know, right. it's just like, well, no, he couldn't no. raise his hand and sermon and more, yeah, know, like that. Okay, so the only wrench I want to throw into this, as far as you know, and I don't know where this falls in it, but look at that. <laughs> At that period of time, the Catholic Church and parochial schools and priests and nuns were were very big fans of corporal punishment. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm just saying, like, okay, but they, they were a Lutheran family. It wasn't like they were involved in the Catholic Church locally. But still, it, that's the thing that makes me have a question is, like, these were tough priests. Like, they're not going to... What would make them pull back from physically interacting with some, you know, teenage boy that was being violent? You know, these were people that were usually experienced working with mentally ill to some extent. You know, so I don't, I don't know where that falls in, in this argument, but the idea that they they were just these sort of milk toast that doesn't fit with my idea of the priesthood. And people involved, you know. And who would be chosen to be the exorcist. Right, right. Well, also keep in mind, though, the Jesuits are kind of like the punk rock versions of priests. Like, they are sort of the most forward-thinking. They're the most liberal of sort of all the different factions of priests. So I can see easily how this priest would go into this environment and something would happen. And the priest would say, like, no, your son has just hardly behaved. You know, what you need to do is this kid needs to be grounded or punished, and this is not possession, and I'm not coming back. And, you know, he scratched me with a piece of metal he pulled off the bed. Yeah. So okay. that was kind of how I rationalized. So we need the Catholic perspective. I know. <laughs> um, the nuns, I mean, I, what they should have done is just send nuns in there because they would have beat the crap out of them. And, like, that would have been the end of the whole story. Right. You know? like, they, nuns pull no punches. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I, and I think that that's also some of the reluctance among the Jesuits in the original story to sort of full-on say, like, yep, this is really, this was the devil. You know, because I think they themselves often default to positions of psychology or, you know, telepathy. And, like, one of the things that's in the book that isn't really in the movie is that the priest sort of pulls away from the idea of possession, thinking, like, oh, she's just telepathic and she's pulling the Latin from my brain. And that's like a reasonable scientific approach. So, yeah, I mean, which it, that and that is pretty progressive thinking. There, the, right there, you're already thinking outside the box without it immediately going to it's this, you know, unstoppable demonic force. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty the, interesting. That's the Jesuits. I mean, that's they're you know they're philosophers and yes, they're grounded in dogma, but there's again, like I said, sort of the most forward thinking. Of all the priests. Huh. <laughs> so what? Let's move towards. Um, oh wait, did you, did you, what was more historical stuff that you wanted to cover, or did, that you thought was interesting? So there's a couple things that the priests. So Halloran, Father Halloran, who was someone that witnessed it, his at the end of the whole thing, and there were two sort of periods recently in history of the actual story and the movie, and the timing has mostly to do with the movie because. With the advent of DVD and Blu-ray and all this kind of stuff, there have been subsequent releases of the movie around which they've tried to generate hype. So Mark Kermode, who's a uh, 
critic and a big, huge Exorcist fan did a documentary that was really good. Like it was, I think the last little documentary blurb with all the major cast members together, but it is a little bit of spin for the DVD. You know, it's kind of, they lean a little more heavily towards the, the spooky stuff and not so much with like Max von Sydow saying like, well, you're on a movie for 15 months. People are going to die. You know? Yeah, exactly. Over that um, amount of time, it's going to happen. So there was that period of time. And then there is sort of after probably in like the 2014 where people just kind of started to say like, all right, well, there's, we can't really milk this for any, anything else. And um, so these priests started to sort of sum up that, they didn't really think it was genuine. That's when Ellen Burstyn sort of revealed the story about, you know, people being upset by the arteriogram and not the demonic stuff. Um, so Father Halloran, who had been, I think, a witness to all of this, was asked, did the boy speak in any languages other than English, just Latin? Which he probably had Latin in school. Yeah. I did. Um, <laughs> did it appear he understood the Latin he was speaking? No, I think he mimicked us. Um, was there any change in the boy's voice? No, not really. When the boy struck you in the nose, did he uh, exhibit extraordinary strength? Uh, I don't know. I never really thought much about it, but it wasn't as though Mike Tyson had hit me. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then even things like, did you witness furniture moving? I saw a bottle slide from a dresser across the room. There was no one near it. The bed moving. I interrupted and asked if the bed was stationary or on wheels. He said, it was on wheels like any bed, but I was leaning on it when it moved. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, interesting, another thing, talking about period pieces, is today the vast majority of beds are not on wheels are not. unless you're in, but however, at that time, yeah. you know, in homes, I know my grandmother had a bed that was on wheels because you needed it for cleaning because yeah. we don't have the appliances we you know that we have now. I think it also speaks to, again... You know, these priests are now willing to reveal this reluctantly because because it discredits their belief in this other world. You know, like, if you don't believe in the devil, then you can't really believe in God. You know, I mean, it's, you kind of can't have Well, the, the strict Catholic view, right? Right. Yeah. So I think that that's why, and a lot of these priests, some, a lot of them have died, but a lot of these things kind of only came out of their mouth as they were sort of like, they knew the end was near. Yeah. Right. Maybe it was their own version of confession to some extent. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Deathbed confession. Deathbed yeah. confessions. <laughs> um, so now about what went on on the set. Oh. Um, well, something that, uh, who's it? On the other podcast? Tammy or Bryce? Bryce. Mm -hmm. Bryce mentioned, and I pretty much agree with this, that he thought that William Friedkin's demeanor and his whole approach really lent to a lot of the whatever the feeling on that Bad energy. Yeah. Because I know, personally, like, I've worked on a movie that was comprised of wonderful, talented people who all wanted to be on a particular show, and the whole thing was poisoned by one incredibly toxic person. And it's, it's, you really feel it like to the point where like you feel nauseous every day. So I think his personality, some of his tactics, the fact that they were dealing with very heavy subject matter, people had personal misgivings about whether or not anybody should be even making this kind of movie. There was a young kid on set, you know, there was all this foul language that this young kid is, 
being expected to do and sort of horrible blasphemous things that she's being expected to do. So yeah, I think it was a, an environment that sort of bred a, a prickly feeling, you know, yeah. that like you couldn't help but get around it. Yeah. What has Linda Blair said about the experience for her? Um, she's been like very frank and positive about it. I and mean, she kind of talks about it in this really matter of fact sort of way that she was a kid and she was, you know, working on this movie and she didn't understand a lot of what it was she was being asked to do. Um, and she would just kind of turn it off and turn it on. And I think they had conversations about like the foul language, you know, and she understood why people sort of cringed supposedly like, they had to cut the first time Max von Sydow heard her like split out with this big spew of horrible language because he was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> like to hear this little girl saying these horrendous things. Okay, um, everyone get all the laughs out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but even so, uh, Roy and Oates, uh, Owen Roitzman did this little home movie version of stuff that they had, you know, behind the scenes when they were making it. And he talks about the, you know, the masturbation scene with the crucifix, which is a profoundly disturbing. It's still to this day. It's like, and I've seen a lot of horror and it's one of the things that bugs me. And he said, you know, it was a a tightly controlled set. Like there weren't a lot of people around, people that had to be there, which on any movie set was probably like 30 people. Um, But he said it was a very lighthearted day. It was sort of, um, grounded in this sort of physical aspect of the effect, you know, and sort of uh, just physically the blocking of what she had to do. And um, they sort of laughed and joked in between. So I think to that end, I think they were all conscious of trying to make it a not traumatic experience for right. Blair. Um, I think there were things that happened physically that were unpleasant for her. You sure. know, reportedly, the set was so cold because it was air conditioned. Well, it was with, built built inside a freezer. I thought. Well, they they built it on a stage, but then it had like three big, like industrial size air conditioners blowing Jeez. into it. But because it, and the whole point was they wanted to see the actor's breath, and then so. The problem is when you air condition something, it removes all the moisture, and that's why you see someone's breath. So they had to get the temperature to be something like 30 below, which is outrageous, you know. Like, And then, you know, here comes the crew in, like, parkas and snow gear and everything, and there's Linda Blair, like, in long johns and a nightgown. Right. <laughs> so she was cold, and half the time she was wet with fake vomit yeah. and everything, you know. So that, I think, was unpleasant. But supposedly, too, she did hurt her back on one of these, you know, like the special mm-hmm. effects rig that was meant to sort of throw her back and forth on the bed. Um, so she did the masturbation scene because I heard that it was a body double. She did part of it. So there were, yes, Eileen Dietz was her stunt double. Okay. And, um, so part of that scene is, so the mother runs, here's the screaming, and the mother runs up the stairs, and she finds Raven masturbating violently with the crucifix, and she tries to wrestle it out of her hand. So all the stuff that you see when she's wrestling with uh, Ellen Burstyn, right. that's the stunt double. Okay. And the stunt double, there's a shot of... Reagan slapping the mother, you know, from behind Reagan, that's the stunt double. And that had to do with just the, sort of the force of the blow. And, um, but the, all the business of, you know, like there's a couple of shots from up above the bed where right. you clearly see it's Linda Blair's face and, you know, she's violently, you know, thrusting this, the crucifix between her legs. Yeah. Um, so she did a lot of it. And in this Owen Reutzman little making of thing, you, you see her, on the set with the foam rubber box with the cable uh, with the K1 
taro jelly and the you know the blood stuff. And she's just kind of like this goofy kid laying there, like holding the crucifix. <laughs> so you know, it, it's horrible for us to see in the way that it's put together. But I think, like you said, you know, they made it a safe environment for her, right? Because they were all. I mean, even like the makeup man, you know. They all at some point express like, God, is this okay with this kid? You know. Well, it's kind of like with a little kid, they fall down, and if everyone freaks out and goes, "Oh, are you okay?" Right. Yeah, and if it, it, it sounds like, and we touched on it in the last episode that they asked her about, you know, kind of her knowledge of this yeah. subject, and so it's. She has since said though she didn't know at the time what masturbation was, which is conflicting, you know, right. like, because I've heard both sides of that right. story. But, I mean, I, I don't well, know Maybe why. she thought she knew what it was. Maybe or, she you did, know. yeah. And, and I think her mother, whatever you can say about sort of stage parents, I think her mother was very proactive in sort of making sure that, you know, like, if Linda said, well, what does this mean? You know, like, I think the mother would sit down in a rational way, explain it to her. Like, doesn't mean you can say it at dinner. You know? Right. But, well, and, you know, that's, I remember that from casting, that was the kind of parent you always wanted to have involved was somebody that just said, this is, if, as long as my kid wants to do this, we'll do it. And it's always framed in, you know, this isn't real. No, yeah. this stuff is real and you still have to do your homework. And you still have to be in bed, you know, like just yeah. to, come, to be appropriate. Yeah. How, you know, that it's all make believe. And that's the difference between, you know, a, a stage parent that's doing it just for, for the career, right. you know, versus like, well, let's, let's, this kid's 11 years old or yeah. like, let's um, wait to see what happens with it down the line. One of the things that I always think is goofy about the sort of, it's not really the behavior on set, but sort of the, again, the telephone game of like the curse of the movie. And afterwards, how there were all these rumors about Linda Blair had such a horrible time. And, you know, she had a horrible time because after the movie came out, there were like these evangelical crazy people that called her with death threats. So then Warner Brothers had to hire a bodyguard to like follow this 12 year old girl around because, you know, like, yeah, that was the horrible time she had. Not to having anything to do with the movie, you know, or the it being possessed or... They're the I, ones that need their parents to explain that it's all fake. Right. <laughs> and I think even Billy Graham like, said that he believed and he like stood on his pulpit and said that the actual physical film that the movie was shot on was possessed. Oh, yes. Like, but again, you know, the Catholics said nothing about it, and the people in Hollywood were like, ooh, yeah, it is. You know? <laughs> they were like, you better keep going, keep it going. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh Drum that up because yeah. it's going to get us more more viewers. Wow! <laughs> um, but then you know, so uh, the just the tone on the set, you know. So William Friedkin, so we were watching that little clip. He slapped that priest to try and get a reaction out of him. He, you know, the story about Ellen Burstyn being sort of pulled by the stunt right. men falling on the floor. That's all real. Um, the very first take that they did with, uh, like, uh, Father Karras getting hit with the vomit. Right. Apparently, you know, they practiced it. They lined up the shot. They set it all up. And it, like, it didn't go off as they had planned. And it was supposed to hit him in the chest. It hit him in the face. That sounds like the kind of thing that William Friedkin did on purpose. And they got... To this, get a real reaction. To get a real reaction. Yeah. They got this great reaction. And that's the one you see in the movie. It's like Jason Miller being completely shocked and trying to get it out of his eyes, you know. So it's 
Wow. I think dealing with that on a daily basis where you kind of don't know what your boss is going to throw at you, literally. <laughs> literally. That could be, that could make for, you know, a rough set. He yeah. also fired guns. He fired a gun off at Jason Miller at one point. And apparently Jason Miller just like freaked out and was like, you know, I'm an actor. I don't even need to do this. Like, I'm not going to play this game. With you. To get like a scared reaction to get a, on his face. Yeah, a shocked reaction. Lovely. Oh, and I don't know what scene it was, but my suspicion is that, you know, so the Father Karras goes and sees Reagan for the first time and he tape records a voice. And then he takes it home and he's like listening to it in like his little dorm room back at the school. And he's listening to it and he's kind of leaning in close and all of a sudden the phone rings. And it's this really startling, like, jump scare kind of moment. I think that's what it was for. But I don't know that. That's just me kind of guessing. <laughs> I, I, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it also ties together with what you were talking about earlier of how the tone on a set, just like the tone in any work situation, it trickles down It trickles down from whoever is 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 the leader. I mean, you, you and Dan have worked on projects with wonderful, wonderful people, that are not horror movies, not even science fiction or, yeah. <laughs> you know, who we're talking about yes. that like can't make a decision about a couch and has the whole, has well, the whole crew the whole, held know, captive whole for days. Is like, yeah. Up and up in an uproar. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's tricky. I also think too, that William Peter Blatt, they're two, they were really always kind of struck me as having William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin having this kind of good cop, bad cop, thing going where Friedkin was the bad cop and Blatty was the good cop and Blatty was like a really funny person you know like he spent most of his career writing for Blake Edwards you know he was a comedy writer um but he had so he had this really crazy sense of humor and I think the two of them together kind of went along with one another to sort of keep the whole thing you know like a little off balance I was just talking about like how things have changed now. Can you imagine? I mean, think about how many times you guys all get yeah. called in. Like, oh, it's your yearly um, OSHA, yeah. <laughs> you know, education CEU triggered. to make I'm, sure I'm feeling abused. Yeah, like really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go do the French Connection, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Like because he was yeah we were talking about in the in the yeah. last podcast that Gene Hackman with the same director was having to do drive his own car yeah. through the Stop. car chase scenes yeah. ch- chase scenes and which were really you, dangerous. When you see that scene in that movie; it's just harrowing. Like you almost can't watch it because you really think like it's a miracle nobody died. Yeah. Well, and you know one of the things that I I think really is interesting and I completely agree with her is Ellen Burstyn. One of the things that I've read upset her the most was not even that he was such a dick that he broke her back, that her coccyx was broken, but that he used her real scream in the movie. And that, like, that was... I I get what she's saying about that. That's a real violation. Mm. It's like, she's a freaking actor. Let her do her her craft. Yeah. You'll get a great performance. Yeah. Be a good director. You don't have to do that. That's like, okay, so now... That's now recorded in perpetuity. Her actual, real physical pain. Physical yeah. pain that now she's you know an injury that she'll live with forever. Well, it's interesting too because even the special effects guy talks about it. You know, he they had a you know they did a take and they or they rehearsed it and she's like he's pulling too hard. I could get hurt and could we just kind of ease up on this a little bit? And apparently, like William Friedkin sort of reluctantly went like oh okay. And then Ellen Burstyn says that. 
she she turned and out of the corner of her eye she sort of saw the two of them kind of like talking and then this is corroborated by the special effects man that says and then he turned to me and he's like I want you to really give it to her really pull her and the special effects guy was like Oh, all right. He's like, I don't want to do this. That's awful. Ellen Burstyn, she's a nice woman, you know. Right. <laughs> like, oh, and, he, and he did it. How awful. But he I actually, you know, I like this is this is where I go in, in situations like this where I'm not a very good professional. I get so angry. Like, I, I want her to get up from that and just kick him in the nuts, both of them in the nuts for doing that. Like, it's just there's no. Well, reason for it. Yeah, and you can see in the scene too, I mean, she really does, like, she goes back hard and she reaches for her back and she, you see it, like, a whole expression on her face. I mean, she just, it looks genuinely real. But it fades out and the scene ends with, like, this just howling, screaming. Supposedly what she did was she, like, stood up and yelled at him, like, turn the fucking camera off, you know, like, <laughs> so, which, yeah, I don't know who could blame her for doing that. No, it not at all. Not at all. Um, wow. Do you want to talk about the subliminal stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so the subliminal, I always thought that the, that image, so first of all, it's not really subliminal because you can, but that's how William Friedkin always described it. Um, With the I feel eye- like the first one is, yes? If I even know what the first one is. Well, the, the first, so the first one happens after the priest's mother dies. He's, you know, incredibly distraught and he he and the other priest, they get drunk in his room. Right. He goes to sleep and he has this nightmare. Yes. And it's a yes. mother kind of coming up out of the, the subway, subway and the dog and the metal falling. And then in there is the flash of the, the first, you know. Is that the first one? That's okay. the first one. In the original version. Okay. Um, and I think it might be in the, the redone version, but I had to think about that. Okay. Um, so... And talk about what the image is. It's, the image is just this kind of ghastly, stark white face, and it looks like a, a skull, but like a really menacing, um, you know, kind of dark circles around the eyes, and this kind, kind of, of sharp teeth, feral, almost. like, green, like up emaciated, yeah, like of, with like black, white, and red. I remember yeah. like the very thin red lips and fang. Are there and fangs? No, but it's this really screwed up looking teeth, and I have a picture because as scared as I am, I can't resist having pictures of this stuff. <laughs> um, and I also have some pictures of so that, but it was the face of. Eileen Dietz. Right, okay. And I did hear that. Suppose, see, so it's this. Oh! Yeah. yeah it's pretty yeah. bright. And, but it's simple, you know? I mean, it like, that's super, it's yeah. just white makeup and, you know, but it's the expression somehow. So, supposedly, and this is, I think, one of those moments where, like, I don't know if William Friedkin remembers what he said in the past about this, but he says that these were initially makeup tests for the demon makeup. Right. And he did a bunch of these on Eileen Dietz to see what they look like. And they shot, like, 10 or 15 minutes of it. And it's just of kind of different expressions and looks and all this kind of stuff. And so then there's another picture that, like, this is Eileen Dietz in the makeup, you know, and you kind of can't see it. But that was one of the earlier test makeups. I see. And I think the reason it was so scary in the original release is that it, one, the image itself, I think, is one of those things that we are hardwired for. In the last podcast, you were talking about the tryptophobia, is that what it's called? Uh-huh. The, the, the fear of the, you know... The holes. The holes, <laughs> and that somehow that hits our subconscious as, a, you know, identifying disease. with disease. Yeah. So I think that as simple as that face is, it's a death mask. It's a skull. It's a, you know, it's this kind of hardwired thing that we're just destined to be frightened by. And then the thing that makes it so successful is that it comes completely out of context, you know? Like, if it had happened 
you know, if somehow something in the house, you know, and you saw it in the house, you'd be like, ooh, the, the demon's in the house. It's scary. And, like, you'd be like, oh, okay. But it happens in the middle of this, like, kind of heartbreakingly sad dream. This priest who's not afraid. He's mourning, you know, the death of his mother, and he right. feels incredibly guilty for it. And so then this thing pops up, and it's just like... Yeah, you're like, what? <laughs> Another, like, what was that? What the hell was yeah. that? Yeah, like, it, it puts you completely off kilter again. Um, and I, I think that like once, once you cross that little bit of a threshold, like when I've seen this movie with an audience, there are things, some of the movie doesn't hold up so well in, you know, because it's dated. Like when they go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes Ritalin and there's always kind of a giggle at that. And there's, and they're smoking. There's, and the yeah. doctor is smoking and he offers her a cigarette. Yeah. Right. Um, and there are giggles like the first time that Reagan curses and stuff, but it's all a little bit like kind of nervous laughter and stuff. But when that moment comes along in the movie, there is always this kind of like just a, and then it gets really kind of icy and quiet. And again, I don't think it's anything spiritual. I think it's just this collective group Jarring. of people. It's having this. It's good yeah. movie making. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Like, uh, despite the uh, director being, you know, kind of a jerk. I mean, yeah. he's really creating something. And I think probably the editor had a lot to do with that as well. Oh, I mean, yeah. we all know that editors, you know, have, have re- should you know really be given a lot of credit for th- what's created. Well, you mentioned Jaws earlier. Jaws is a movie that was great because of the way it was edited. Yeah, um, they almost didn't have a movie because Vernon Fields. Had Verna Fields not saved that movie, they might not have had Jaws. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. And isn't, don't they flash it again when the mom's just kind of walking through the kitchen or something? Something really mundane. Well, see, that's when they did the DVD release and they came out with the version you've never seen, which I think is kind of a mess. Um, That's when they added that stuff back. They just kind of throw it somewhere in a blank corner. They kind of started to tart it up a little bit, you know, which I thought sort of sucked. because, again, there was a couple moments. So in the original version, there was, you know, I think three times. So there was that first time in the dream, and then there was part of the exorcist when the bed first levitates, and then it rocks back to the floor, and the lights start to flash. You see it. Uh-huh. But what's interesting is you see it almost projected in the, from the same angle as, like, Linda Blair's head is. In okay. the scene. So you kind of catch a glimpse of it, and you sort of see yeah. that it's not her face. And then I think there is one more time, like an overlay, almost like a so that was like, like a projection, like right? Okay. And and then that moment that we noticed, you know, when it's kind of half projected on her yeah. face. So oh, it, was, okay. it was very limited use. But then when they did this other version, yeah, there's like the mother comes in and the lights are flashing and the phone is ringing and yeah, yeah, it yeah. appears on like the oven hood. And I was like, what? You know? Yeah, and, it's very Fight Club. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's also very sort of like. Boom. You know, yeah. it's like this dumb kind of spooky ghost moment. It's a jump scare, it's a, in a way. Yeah. So I just thought, yeah, it was sort of ridiculous. The one moment that they did put it in that in the version you've never seen is one of the earlier, they put back some of these earlier scenes when Reagan goes to the doctor. And there's a scene where, like, Reagan's in the doctor's office, and she's just, like, laying on this thing, and she gets this confused look on her face, and they flash it, and it kind of looks at, like, kind of leers at her. It's like, ah! Yeah, I remember. Um, they showed that. Yeah, which is TV. I thought that was a good moment for it, you know, because it, it started... But, so I was going to say, I thought that was a good moment because it made sense that it was her and everything, but it also kind of blows the the conceit that the demon is trying to convince them that this is medical and not spiritual. 
Like, I think that that's one of the things that makes the movie work successfully all the way through is this sort of the unwillingness for anybody to believe that this is anything other than psychological or right. physical, you know, so it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. And like, that's one of the things which, you know, we, we didn't talk about earlier, but I find fascinating and relieving that like not every, you know, the Catholic church is not jumping to every claim of, uh, of this uh, possession to go do an exorcism. They're like, no, here are the things that we look at, which are based on actual, the, the oh, doctrine, right? Which is, yeah. well, that, that it has to be speaking in other languages, have access to knowledge that they couldn't know. Couldn't, yeah, like a, and couldn't possibly know. There are several others that are like that. Um, you know, go ahead. Oh, sorry. That's one of the things that's interesting in the book that you could, I guess, never get into the movie just for length, but the conversations with the demon in the book are really interesting. Um, because it's it's this constant back and forth of like the demon saying things that only a demon could know, yeah. <laughs> and then sort of like these weird mundane things that it's this co- combination of trickery, you know, that yeah. it's like I'm I'm giving you a little bit of what you want, but I'm also kind of really screwing you over with a lot of lies, so you really can't make a decision. Which is it. kind of what that's you know the prince of lies is, yeah, right? I mean right. that's that's manipulation of, of information, and I, like there's a and even as you and I were watching this heavily edited version, I'm immediately going, well, why can't she, you know, when he challenges her to uh, make the the restraints disappear? Yeah. Well, and she's like. It's far too vulgar to display it's too, power. <laughs> yeah, too vulgar. But you'll open the drawer. Right. We'll but make, you'll, make the whole room. Or you'll make the, the, yeah. the, the ceiling crack open. But like. But then again, wouldn't that isn't that exactly what it is like? So everybody's off guard. Like we don't really know what this this entity is capable of. Yeah, I, and I think too in, in the movie, which we call gaslighting, right? Gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. No, don't get me. <laughs> um, in the movie, I think too you you are meant. I think meant to believe that the that Father Karras up until about halfway through the actual exorcism, still doesn't believe that he's witnessing something supernatural or spiritual. You know, like, so Father Marin kind of goes about this in this very sort of controlled, authoritative, you know, kind of like he's changing the sheets. You know, like he knows what he's got to do. He's embracing this as a reality. And Father Karras is kind of still, even in his face, looking at it with this skepticism of like, what is is the bed really moving? Like, what is she doing with her tongue? You know? So, and I don't think it's until we see, you know, the image of his mother sitting on the bed that he sort of fully puts together that like, all right, this is really happening. So he leaves the room and then when he comes back, well, wait, is that before or after the levitation, the full levitation? One would hope that after he's seen that, even that, I mean, Again, in the books, that's sort of explained away as telekinetic, and maybe this person is just, you know... Nothing su- a, supersedes nature, uh, yeah, then. It's, right. This okay. is a preteen girl who is just now embracing puberty and her new telekinetic powers. <laughs> Man, right. I didn't like, get those. You go, girl, right? <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> Where <was> I? Right? <laughs> you were too dangerous to have those. They, yeah. You're like Jean, Jean, Grey. Jean Grey. Dr. X went in and, and like, <laughs> blocked your powers. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. Um, so we've covered subliminals in the movie that are not as, I mean, I think that's interesting. Once again, sort of the game of telephone, it's cultural telephone. We have this idea that there's subliminal stuff throughout the movie and it's actually not. 
there's very little, and it's not even subliminal is the idea that you miss it. You're going like, wait, did I see something? And these are very clearly, they're flashes, but you see what's yeah. happening. I mean, it's a, it's a frame of the film. Right. right. It's not, there's nothing that mysterious about it. Right. And even, it's really there. Even at the end when we, when Pazuzu presents in the room, mm-hmm. it's not this sort of Hollywood version of a demon. It's the, it's the, the Assyrian statue yeah. that has been unearthed and it's backlit really yeah. frighteningly. Interesting. Um, okay, so we covered history. We covered some of the things that happened on set. We covered um, Jesuits, which I think is really fascinating. Now I feel like I need to go the learn Jesuits more about the Jesuits. Are, yeah, are like a fascinating bunch. You know, who's it? Uh, Chardin was a Jesuit priest, like a famous French philosopher. Um, oh yeah, was a he was a Jesuit, and so I mean that that they tell this story with what are supposed. to you know, again, I don't know, the Augustinians might get pissed off about this, but, you know, with this group of priests that is meant to be sort of the most intellectual, the most forward-thinking, the most philosophical, and open to as many different explanations as the possibility that it's a devil, I mean, that was a pretty cool choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So... Before I lose this thought, what is your favorite, or what do you, what do you think is the best version? Because there's now three or four different versions. Certainly there's the heavily edited television version that is just, it's barely even worth watching, even though it has some of the good scenes, but you don't, you don't get the continuity. You don't get the, the real gut reaction to Linda Blair, you know, saying these horrible things. And we should also mention the, the vocal work of Mercedes McCambridge, who was a radio actress. And she had been a film actress back in the fifties, heavy smoker, heavy, heavy, heavy smoker drinker. And apparently she had been like on the wagon until she made this movie. Wow. So again, the telephone spin factory, like she made this movie and she had to drink again, you know, like, no, she started drinking because she was smoking and she was doing things to like manipulate her voice. And for that reason, because she was sort of stepping away from her sobriety, she wanted her priest there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, oh. Again, there is like this other layer of like that she wanted emotional support to deal with her sobriety and to make sure that she got back to her safe place. But now also, I don't know, have you ever watched her appearance, her guest appearance on Johnny, on Carson? Johnny Carson? No. You've never seen it? I think you can go. I mean, I remember seeing it, and that was one of the few times that I actually was watching the show, Johnny Carson, but it's it's on YouTube, I believe. But he... Does this thing like you know he? You could see some genuine reactions on him. Obviously, you know when the animals were crapping on him from yeah. you know the visiting wildlife and stuff. But he has her on as a guest, and he's asking her about. Well, you know, you have a, a lovely voice. I mean, and how did you, how did you get into character for this? And she goes, you know, it's something that you just, you know, you you have to prepare it. It comes up, and then she sort of she, I have does this, this does full this body heave, and then spits out. I don't know, it's a couple of lines from the movie, and it really is frightening. And he jumps out of his chair <laughs> like it awesome. freaks him out yeah. because she's. A phenomenal actress, you and know. Is here this like sweet little old lady sitting in the chair, yeah. and out comes the. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting too that the sound design won an Oscar, and um, it was at the time, you know, in the same way that like the special effects for Star Wars were this like big, you know, big deal when Star Wars came out. The sound design for this movie was this big deal, and one of the things I think is coolest is that they were having a conversation about what the demon should sound like, and. Um, William Friedkin said he wanted it to sound like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, 
Wow. Which, when you hear it, you know, and there's like animal noises, and you can hear several different people talking at the same time, and the voice isn't really. It's all layered. Male or yeah. female. Yeah. So it's. Although, he, there are no male voices. Like, that was something I, I had heard is that it's layers. Actually. Of, oh, is there? Okay. I thought. There, it, so, you know, the scene where um, Chris and Sharon are. Uh, they've just come back into the house, and the it's a guy comes to the door to tell them that Burke has died. That guy in the script is one of, is like the first AD character, and he actually did some of the voices and sounds. Oh, there's like nine people that that, that did, so did the voice, but it is largely Mercedes McCambridge who did a lot of it. And then there was an interesting thing too, like when they first did it. They had this sort of gentleman's agreement that, like, she wasn't going to get a screen credit because they wanted Freakin wanted there to be this kind of mystery about where that whole where the sound of the voice came from and who was it and the kid and everything. Then it turned into this wild success, and Mercedes McCambridge was like, "Well, maybe I should." I think I want my name on that. And then Linda Blair got nominated for a Best Supporting Actor, and it became an issue for the Academy that all of a sudden it came out that. Well, that's not Linda Blair doing the voice. It's nine other people. <laughs> but, so, and they couldn't. I don't think that the Academy like doesn't ever take away a nomination. So, I but so they had to give it. You know, keep the let the nomination stand. But um, again, mired in a little bit of controversy. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, fact. that is fascinating to me. You know, we we were talking about okay. Wait, okay. the best version. Oh yeah, I think. Sorry, I still think that the best version is the original uh, 70, 71, 70, yeah, seventy one original release. Um, because as some of those things that we talked about, you know, they sort of tarted it up for like, right? You know, they were trying to just market it like, oh, people that have seen it a million times, there's new stuff in it, you know, for people who've never seen it. But I think that that original version is still the best. Um, or something else. Oh, my favorite scene. Yes. <laughs> my all-time favorite scene in the whole thing is the scene between um, Chris McNeil and the detective Kinderman when they're sitting at the, her little dining room table and they're having a cup of coffee and Kinderman is kind of like laying out this the circumstances of uh, Burke Denning's death. And he's kind of slowly and in a kind of annoying. Is this after he's been outside and he's found Reagan's little? He's been downstairs. And the he clay and animal finds the little clay animal, and so immediately after that, he comes up, and that's when they have this conversation. And it's the moment when you see Ellen Burstyn's character put together that, like, oh my god! So, first of all, it's this really scary idea that, like, that Kinderman says. It could be one way that, like, maybe there was someone in the room with your daughter that killed him and pushed him out the window, but it would have to be someone that was, like, so big and physically powerful that they broke his neck and threw him out the window, which is a terrifying idea for, like, the mother to be sitting there thinking, like, so there was someone else in the room with her who killed, you know, like, and then she starts to put it together, like, no, it was her. Uh (laughs) This was all her doing. And... The tension in that scene is unbelievable, and it's a couple of shots that are sort of like real slow pushes in and real slow pulls out, um, and you see sort of every every kind of version, every thought of what possibly could have happened 
kind of go through her mind and register on her face. Then he leaves, and she has this great physical thing going on where it's like she's shaking, but she's trying to hold it together, and she literally, like, clenches her fist, and I think puts her hand in her mouth at one point, and that is followed up by the masturbation scene. Oh. So it's just like this incredibly tense whole scene where you're just like, oh my god, followed up by this horrific... It's <laughs> also interesting that the way the detective, what's his name? Kinderman. Kinderman is... He is malevolent. He's not like a kind of a friendly, I want to figure this out. He's threatening. Well, again, I think that this was part of Freakin's conceit, that he's, he plays both sides. He is The detective is both good cop and bad cop, because he's really sweet and really friendly and kind of cuddly in a way, but then he turns on a dime and like both with her and the, and priest. the priest yeah and, so and you see him like through the door. you see him yeah. through the door and you see him in angles from then on yeah and it's yeah he's not nice cop anymore yeah. no but you're right i mean that last shot of him coming through the door yeah is is as scary as any other image <laughs> yeah and she already knows like who it, like she doesn't yeah. even want to open the door for him right. and stuff what's your favorite scene scott uh gosh I think I mean it's I I don't I'm not sure I can say that now because so much has changed since we learned about the movie. I, <laughs> I used to just think that was her, you know, at the beginning when she's playing. I think Linda Blair is such a great actress, and she's just like a kid. They're like there's no, there's no like there's no foreboding or foretelling in her performance as much as there is in the environment around her when she's playing, which yeah. by the way, I thought they built on beautifully in the, in the series, yeah. in the TV series at first. <laughs> they, wow, they really did a great job with that. There was a couple of really fantastic scenes in the TV show that were scenes right out of the book that I just thought were great. And it was like this flashback when you see Reagan as a kid again, you know, so it wasn't the, uh, who's that? The young, the, it was the girl was, playing in the, young and, girl yeah. and, I, and another actress playing the, the Chris McNeil part. Um, that, those scenes were really, and when I saw those, you know how you said like when they sort of like outed that all of a sudden, oh my god, I try to like you jump up and like, yeah, yeah. and that the basement looked exactly the, the same. Looked the same. It was yeah. great. That was great. I just love the kind of the opening scene when they finally get to DC when she's walking home from the set, and it's just like the epitome of fall. Like you yeah. watch that scene, you're like, it's fall, it's almost Halloween, right. and the wind blowing, and the leaves, and the nuns with their right. you know cloaks <laughs> flowing behind them. I love that. See, that's, a, again, another part of the sort of almost campaign of misinformation that, like, you see these kids run by in their Halloween costumes, but they never discuss it's Halloween. No, that's the only clue. There's you nothing get. about like Reagan going trick or treating or other nope. kids coming to the door or anything like that. And then the combination of seeing like I th- I always thought this was a really funny dark stab at religion, and you know, so you see the kids in their little black and white flowing robes run by in their Halloween. Mm-hmm. goofiness and then you see the nuns mm-hmm. and the comparison is like well, they're just as goofy as the kids in the Halloween <laughs> you know, like, well that's what he's trying to say yeah. obviously he's like yeah, yeah. But, okay so also another thing that's cool about the difference between the book and the movie is in the in the book it, the, everything starts on April 1st April Fool's Day oh really and I heard William Peter Blatty or read once that he did that on purpose as, to kind of again sort of like is to the reader like is this all a joke is this setting that undertone? Yeah, like it just kind of setting it up well, in the beginning. That and that's you know that's what April Fools is supposed. To, it's a day of pranks. 
pranks, lies, tricks, <laughs> right? So right. there's a couple of layers there right. that he's telling. And also the implication that this is the demon doing this as a prank or a joke, you know, that right. like, it's not just him as an author, but it, that this is part of one of the characters in the story. And it's just like, it's such a rich, clever, weird stab that goes completely unmentioned. You know, yeah. That like, yeah. It's just another one of those. Less is more Yeah. in this context. And there's a thing in the book, too, where the the way it's written, like probably two-thirds of the book is really this descent into like darkness and despair and the horror of what's happening and the confusion of, is this kid sick? And then when Father Marin shows up, it's like the clouds part and the sun comes in and it is really even the way, the style of writing is, becomes different. And so like you get the sense that like, I think one, you're meant to think that like, all of this is real because the whole environment has just changed because this, guy because this gonna, holy person has, holy walked, person in, has yeah. walked in and it's going to fix this. And it just, just as a reader, it has such a strange impact where you're like, Ooh, I just feel like so different. All of a yeah, sudden. You feel lighter like this, and, yeah. this bizarre, like in a book that, you know, how many times do you have that kind of experience with a book? And what, you know, the gravity that Max Van Cito is able to to hold and, and make that change. I mean, they even make lighting changes in the movie when he comes in. Yeah. But And you gave me a bit of trivia when we were watching that I completely was not paying attention to because I thought, wow, he looks really kind of ghoulish. Like, you know, he's really pale. This is, And you were like, uh, he's only 44 years old. That's like, yeah, yeah they what? aged him. Yeah, they aged him to like, what, 75? Yeah. It's really convincing makeup. Oh so Dick Smith won an Academy Award for that, and I think it was almost more for his makeup for, for Father Marin as it was for the horror makeup. Probably. You know, like, it's pretty ghoulish, and they put a lot of thought into it, but that age makeup, I think, is still one of wow. the best age makeup you've ever seen. In a and then it doesn't come off when he's his whole face is covered with pea soup that he has right. to, that lug that <laughs> and, she hawks um, on him, he has to wipe off. Bit of fun trivia, it's not Campbell's pea soup, it's Anderson's pea soup. Okay. okay. <laughs> I've had Ander- I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, I've had Anderson's pea yeah. soup, pretty good. <laughs> so there, there was something about it, I wasn't green enough running some crazy thing. <laughs> well, the colors, you know, like now, you know, and then here's something else, you and I are going Wednesday night to the yeah. screening. What theater is it? At, uh, it's at the Center Arc light, okay. Oh, and they're having a big t- Monday, tomorrow night, they're having a big Academy screening, and uh, I think William Friedkin and Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn are going to be there. Oh, that's like, cool. Oh. <laughs> that will have all have happened already by the time you guys I know. This. But <laughs> coming on, what I'm interested in looking at um, also is you know, in looking at the, the scene, the masturbation scene, there's so much blood, and then the the blood is almost to me in this TV version, which, you know, who knows how many iterations digitally that has been. So it's, it, the color is off or my television is off, but the color watching it on television looked like a horror hammer, a a hammer horror film where it was like, like a garish. It didn't look like blood. It looks like food coloring. So I want to see in the version we're going to see is the green as green in the soup and is the blood as red. Yeah. Cause if it is, that's an interesting 
design choice. I also I noticed though watching on TV there is a sort of overly saturated green in the vomit. I know that's like mm. a tiny weird dopey detail, but like. But I'm just wondering: is that our television, or is it, it the? Is. Okay, I, I think it's also just the aspect ratio of the difference between seeing you know an image projected 40 feet wide as opposed to something on high definition television. Right. So yeah, I think that there is some aspect to that that is like it oversaturated green, the red looks a little too hot, you know. And, um, but it's an interesting experience seeing it on a big screen with an audience. I hope it's the, I have, like I said, the 73 version, because I, I still think that's the best. Okay. Without the dopey extra. Right. <laughs> so do you leave the, do you leave open for the possibility that there's something out there that somebody could let in inadvertently? Possibly, but I don't think it's God or the devil. I think it's, you know, if, if you've opened the door and Aunt Tilly comes back in and she's not happy, that could be a, a difficulty. Yeah. Right, know? right. If, if maybe Aunt Tilly abused this kid and she comes back through, that's going to be a further, you know. I mean, I, I believe any aspect of us as humans it's possible for any of that to sort of go and come back or be with us now, you know, I mean, but I don't think it's a devil. I don't think it's Jesus. (laughs) Well, that, I think that's us. That's the way we look at it when we're doing, you know, um, uh, understanding a case, understanding a profile that we're developing on someone is like, how much has this, um, how much is the internalized view of this person's abuser? How much is it living in them? Yeah. How much is it is that relationship with what they've internalized guiding their life? And maybe in some cases, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm going to be agnostic about it. But in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of unresolved teenage angst and mm-hmm. hormones racing through their bodies. And who's to say that we're not all a little telepathic or telekinetic at that time? I don't know. Yeah. I think in a a couple of hundred years, we'll have a lot more we'll answers. Have a better sense of yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly sure. what people can do. Yeah. Good. Well, I am so excited that you came and talked to us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for um, letting me come. As you can tell, I get super deep. <laughs> <I love talking laughs> <about it. laughs> well, great. So, what I would love to do also is after it's all said and done is have you back and talk about the project that you're working on now because I, I since I know what movie it is, but I can't say there's also a a psychological profile in that movie that I want to explore with. Okay. Good. All right. Yeah. So everybody, thanks so much. Um, this has been great and we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Say bye Al. Bye Al. As we mentioned before, we are pleased to announce that we will be making an appearance at the first annual true crime podcast festival in Chicago in July 2019. The True Crime Podcast Festival is going to be all about giving you access to your favorite true crime podcasts and interacting with your favorite hosts in face-to-face and forum meetings. There will be panel discussions, live tapings, and of course, meet and greet opportunities with yours truly. Some of your other favorites will be there like Swindled, Wine and Crime, The Fall Line, Canadian True Crime, and The Paranormal Chicks. For more information or to purchase tickets, go to tcfp2019.com and be sure to mention LA Not So Confidential when you fill out registration information for your tickets. We'll see you there at LA Not So Confidential.